Welcome to the Seven Hills Church Podcast with Marcus Mika. We're excited you're here listening as Pastor Marcus is about to bring an incredible teaching that is sure to inspire, motivate, and lift you up. You can visit us on our website at sevenhillschurch.tv or download our free Seven Hills Church app to watch or listen to more exclusive content. Thank you for tuning in and we hope you enjoyed the message. Well, we plan on taking that first step today in this message. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4 and verse 40. I want to talk to you about what is your Jerusalem. When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And Jesus laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many crying out saying, you are the Christ, the son of God. And he rebuked them and did not allow them to speak for they knew that he was the Christ. Isn't it interesting, all throughout the New Testament, people were confused about who Jesus was. But the demons were crystal clear. They knew exactly who he was. The demons cried out saying, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. Verse 42, and when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him, came to him, and tried to keep him from leaving them. But Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. This story to me is significant in several ways. The Bible says that they begin to bring the sick to Jesus when the sun is setting. So the sun is setting and he's praying for people. We don't know exactly how many people they brought to Jesus, but we know the number is significant enough that he doesn't stop praying for them until the sun rises the next day. So he prays from sunset to daybreak, 10 plus hours, he prays for person after person after person. He begins to withdraw to prepare to go to another city and the people seek him out and they ask him to stay. They don't want him to leave. But the Bible says Jesus tells them, I can't stay. I've got to go to other cities. Now, Jesus has been up all night, 10 hours, praying for potentially hundreds of people. I think it's fair to say that Jesus was not trying to shirk the work. I think it's fair to say Jesus was not lazy. I think it's fair to say that Jesus had no problem showing compassion and working as hard as he could. He prayed for people all night long. But people still wanted him to stay. They still had needs. They still wanted him to do more. But Jesus turns his back on those people and he walks away. He looks at the people that have needs that have yet to be met. And he tells them no. And he goes in another direction. This is a hard thing to think about, isn't it? And if you were one of the people that hadn't been prayed for yet, how would you feel about that? Would you and I probably be one of the guilt trippers, right? Why did he pray for them and not me? Did he, why did he love them and not me? Why did he pray for their son, not my son? There would have been all kinds of people that were upset that Jesus was going to leave, but yet Jesus says, for this purpose I have been sent. He says no, and he walks away. This is important to me and to you for several reasons. 
But maybe one of the most important reasons is Jesus teaches us we don't have to do it all. The Messiah did not have a Messiah complex. Jesus had no problem saying no to real needs that people had. I have a problem with this a little bit, but yet if we let it play out for just a minute, I have a bigger question for Jesus, and that is how did he do it? How did he have the courage? How did he have the strength to say no? I don't know about you, but when I have to say no to real needs, especially with people that I love and I care for, but for some reason I come to a limit and I can't do something they want to do, I feel guilty. Does anybody else feel guilty when you can't do maybe something somebody else wants to do? And even when I do say no, later on that day I beat myself up saying, you know, well, maybe I could have made an arrangement. Maybe I could have come through. Maybe I didn't have to sleep eight hours. You know, maybe I could have cut that meeting short or maybe I didn't have to let that meeting go long or, you know, maybe I could have made an adjustment in my day here. Did I have to jump on social media? You know, did I have to watch TV that night? When I say no, I feel guilty about it. And I beat myself up and many times even tell myself that that something's off with me because if I really cared and I really love people, I would have never said no. But yet Jesus is here finding the strength and the courage to look at a real need and say no. How did he do it? Well, if you follow the life of Jesus, you will discover that something is driving him. Something is in his future that he's orienting all of his decisions around. Everything that he says yes to and everything that he says no to is based on this place that he is going and a limited amount of time that he has to get there. He's very focused on the time that he has. The Bible says during his first miracle that he tells his mom, my hour has not yet come. Later on in Luke chapter 9, the Bible says that he set his face because his hour had come or his time had come. So Jesus was very aware that there was a place that God was calling him to go and a time frame that he had to fulfill it in. And in order to accomplish that, he knew his yeses had to be incredibly accurate and his noes also had to be, he had to be willing to say no to some things. He had to be willing to say, I wished I could do it all, but I've got to stay focused on this larger purpose. The reason we say yes is because it feels good to say yes. The reason we struggle to say no is because many times it doesn't feel good to say no. But feeling better isn't always being better. Most of your messes are because of your yeses. And so Jesus shows up in this story. He shows us that he works and that he sacrifices and no sleep and he meets the needs of hundreds of people but yet he comes to the end of himself in that city and he has something greater he's got to get to and he says no to real needs. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 9 what's going on in verse 50, 51. It says, now... It came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. There it is. That's the phrase. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Everything Jesus said yes to and everything that he said no to depended on will this help me get to Jerusalem? Yes. Will this hinder me from getting to Jerusalem? Then the answer is no. There's a giant thing his life is about and it's about him getting 
to Jerusalem? What is the greater thing your life is about? What's the giant thing that your life is about? What is your Jerusalem? Do you have a focus? Do you have something clear that you're going after? Because if not, then you'll end up saying yes to a lot of good things and that will keep you from saying yes to the God thing in your life. And as a result, before you know it, every time you say yes, people won't be confident in your yes because your yeses, you don't follow through with them. Your yeses are neutered. They're decaffeinated. They don't have any strength in them anymore. And at some point you have to learn that if God is calling me to something, I have to let my yes, the Bible says in Matthew chapter five, be yes and my no be no. Jesus was able to make sure that every decision was filtered through the greater thing. Is this going to help me get to Jerusalem? He would look at Simon Peter, who was one of his closest friends and disciples, and actually tell him that he was Satan because Simon Peter tried to hinder him from getting to Jerusalem. Now, we know that Simon wasn't Satan, but we also know that Jesus was so committed to get to Jerusalem that he didn't have to look at Simon having like a pitchfork and horns. He didn't have to look at Simon with like, you know, a bunch of flies flying out of his mouth. Come on. To look at him and think that the enemy is potentially using him. All he had to do was know, I've got to get to Jerusalem. He's trying to hinder me from getting there. This guy is not responding according to the purpose of God on my life. And the enemy very well could be using him to stop me. Everything in his life was focused on Jerusalem. Broken focus causes more failures than anything else. James 1.8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That when someone wavers in their faith, they will receive nothing. But Jesus was focused. He had a rhythm about his life. His yeses, his ability to keep his word, his noes, his, his even greater than that, his ability to be spontaneous because he knew where he was going. So he created margin in his life to be able to do the things along the way that would pop up. We're just the opposite. Our life is so packed. We're so committed. We've said yes to so many things. Our life is so piled on top, this thing on top of this thing on top of this thing. We're like a human conveyor belt. We don't even, we don't even give ourselves permission to have spontaneity or emotions or, or just a sudden act of compassion. You know, when, when the guy's in the ditch and the Samaritan walks by and is able to meet his need, but all the priests and all the religious people don't have the time, it's because the religious people are beating themselves up all the time. I gotta be busy, I gotta be busy, I gotta be busy, I gotta say yes, I gotta say yes, I gotta say yes. And then when the real need came up, they didn't have any margin to be able to meet that need. So Jesus had spontaneity. He could meet unexpected needs. He, he could move in directions because he was so clear on what God had called him to do. So how did he do it? How did he get so much done in a limited amount of time? One of the secrets would be his relationships. In Matthew chapter 17, the Bible says Jesus goes up the mountain of transfiguration and you see him inviting his inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. In Matthew chapter 11, you see him focused on the 12. In Luke chapter 10, he's focused on 72. In Acts, in Acts chapter 2, he's focused on the 120. Jesus doesn't 
feel guilty when he can't take the 120 up the mountain. He's very aware that he had relational limits. He was aware that he could not go deep with everyone. And he didn't feel guilty when he couldn't go deep with everyone. Jesus lived with confidence and assurance knowing I have a place to go. I have a time period to get there. And every relationship that I need to get there, God will be faithful to provide along the way. In other words, when a relationship didn't go deep, he didn't interpret it as failure or rejection. What happens with us is if we want a deep relationship with someone or we, they don't let us into the inner circle, we immediately feel rejected and we withdraw, we withdraw. But Jesus didn't see when people wouldn't let him come close or when they wouldn't let him go deep with him, he didn't see it as rejection. He saw it as redirection. Remember, he goes to Samaria. He had just significantly helped this community. He met the woman at the well He changes her life. The whole city comes out. And he had a profound impact on this entire region. Months later, he's coming back through the area. And he sends word, hey, I'm coming. Can you have us a place to stay? Can you prepare prepare a meal? And word gets back to Jesus that they've asked him to not come. They don't have room for him. Don't come. And Jesus doesn't get angry. He doesn't get mad. He doesn't feel rejected. Remember James and John who were there with him. You remember what they said? They said to Jesus, let's call down fire on them. So when someone didn't allow them to come the way into the relationship in the way that they wanted him to, James and John's response to Jesus was, we need to drop a nuclear bomb on the whole area. And the reason some of us get so bitter and so angry and our responses call down fire on them is because we get offended and we see when someone doesn't want to go deep with us in the time frame that we want them to go, when and how we want, we're, we're so rejected and we're so offended that that's our response. But Jesus doesn't get angry. You know what Jesus does? He sees their no. What many people would see as rejection, he sees it as redirection. And he immediately tells James and John, no, 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 no. Let's just go to another village. If God wanted us to go there, he would have opened every door that was needed to go there. So he must not want us to go there. He must want us to go over here to another village. You and I have to have the faith that God knows every relationship that we will need to get from where we are to the place that he's called us to. And don't get mad, don't get angry, you don't need to call down fire on them. Just have the faith that God has another relationship for each and every one of you. So Jesus knew we can't go deep with everyone, and everyone can't go deep with you. But you do have to go deep with someone. You do have to go deep with someone. What happens to many of us is we experience rejection and then we withdraw. But you can't accomplish anything great and never go deep with anyone. You can't. You can't. You can't be a lone ranger. You can't isolate. I'm sorry. I know you're superwoman. I know you're superman. I know you're strong, I know you're smart, I know you're motivated, but you cannot ultimately 
God won't allow you to. He, he puts it in the fabric of who we are that we are going to need someone along the way. In the 1500s, there were two brothers, the Durer brothers. And you may not know of them right off the top of your head, but you will uh, know of them in just a moment. These two brothers grew up in a family uh, of 18 siblings. So a massive family, and as a result of that, they had very little means as a family. Their dad would work 18 hours a day as a goldsmith, and again, they're just limited finances. So it wasn't in the cards for them to go off to college. It wasn't in the cards for them to, to have that kind of a life. And both of them had a dream. They had dreams of being an artist. They were very gifted. They were very talented. And there was a famous art academy that they wanted to go to, but they knew there would be no way with the income of their family that they would ever get to this academy. And so they made a deal at a young age. When we graduate from high school, we will flip a coin. And whoever wins the coin toss gets to go to this great academy. The other brother has to stay behind and work in the mines and pay for the other brother to fulfill his dream. When that brother's done and he gets out, then he has to come back, work in the mines, and send the other one. So they graduated from high school. They flipped the coin. Albert Loss, the one brother, he has to go work in the mines for four years. Albert won, and now Albert Durer won, so now he's in this art academy. He shows up. He's so gifted. All of his works are sensational. He becomes very popular very quickly. And so the village and the town that he came from saw him as a, as a town hero. And after four years, he came back and they threw this massive party for Albert. They threw a party for him. Music is playing. The food is great. And at the end of the party, they ask Albert to stand up and say something. And he gives a toast to his brother Albert. And he tells everybody there the story that as kids, they made a deal that both of them couldn't go to the academy, that they would flip a coin and that they flipped a coin and that he won the coin toss. And that was the only reason he got to go to the art academy. And then he pointed over and toasted his brother Albert and said, it's because of Albert's sacrifice that I was able to go and fulfill my dream. And then he looked at his brother Albert and he says, now it's my turn to go work in the mines and it's your turn to fulfill your dream." Everybody focuses on Albert. Tears are streaming down his face. And finally, he says to him, there's no way I'll ever be able to go to the academy. It's impossible. It's too late for me. And he holds up his hands and he said, every single finger in my hand has been crushed and smashed working in the mines. I can hardly move them. The arthritis that has set in is so bad, I couldn't even lift up my cup to respond to your toast, let alone hold a pen or a pencil or a brush. He said, it's too late for me. That's almost 500 years ago. And Albert's work and his masterpieces are in every great museum around the world. But there's one that's especially significant that most of us know about. In this particular drawing, Albright wanted to honor his brother Albert for the sacrifices that he had made. So Albert sets his brother down and he asks him to put his hands together as he painstakingly draws 
his brother's hands. And as he draws his brother's hands in a way to honor him, this masterpiece goes around the world. The whole world begins to celebrate this masterpiece and they actually rename it the praying hands. And the goal was for everyone to look at this and always know no one makes it on their own. No one. We, we don't need everybody, but we need somebody. You can't go deep with everyone, but you do have to go deep with someone. The next thing is Jesus lived with physical limitations. The theological word would, phrase would be he was 100% God, but he was also 100% human. We don't like to think about the limitations of Jesus while he was on this earth in his body, but he wasn't just God. He was 100% human. The Bible says tempted in every way that we are, that he's a God that can relate to us because he's been touched with all our infirmities. You know, there's all our weaknesses, all our issues. It should help us to know that Jesus couldn't do it all. So now we're sitting here in this place and the enemy wants to whisper to you and beat you up because you have limits and you have things you can't do and you, you get tired and you get weary. But I believe one of the greatest things you can know is that we all have limits. Jesus had limits and so do you. In John chapter four, the Bible says that Jesus goes to Samaria. And the Bible says in verse six of that chapter, that Jesus was wearied from his journey. Think about it. Jesus was tired, the Bible says. But I want you to look at verse number eight. It says that his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus is on a journey and he collapses and he sets down by a well. He's so tired, he can't go any further. But his disciples that had been on the exact same journey, they don't sit down. They keep on going and they go down into the city to buy food. And you don't see Jesus beating himself up because he can't keep up with the disciples. And you don't see the disciples being condescending towards Jesus because he can't keep up with them. Jesus is tired And you don't see them saying things like, you know, the son of God just isn't carrying his weight around here. You don't see them saying, you know, yeah, he can cast out demons. He can do an exorcist, but he can't go down the road and buy a sandwich. Is he getting a little big for himself here? Isn't he thinking too highly of himself? But notice the son of God who came to serve has no problem letting others serve him. He has no problem appearing weak or exhausted. He has no problem saying, I have limits. And he has no problem saying, I'll let you do what I cannot do. You must be willing to admit you have limitations. And when you finally admit that you have them, you'll learn that limitations are actually a good thing. When you accept that you have limitations, it exposes the unnecessary things in your life. It removes stress. And it helps you look for the treasure in others that are all around you. And then finally, Jesus lived with a sense of divine guidance. 
John chapter 5, verse 19, it says that he stayed true to what the Father gave him to do. He said yes to this and yes to that and yes to them and yes to them. But then he would say no to this and no to that and no to them. All based on knowing what the Father was guiding him to do. Did you know what Jesus' heart for us was? Was that we would have an ear to hear what the Spirit was saying. In other words, Jesus knew we would never be able to get to our Jerusalem if we could not have an ear to hear what the Spirit of God was saying. The only way he got to his Jerusalem, which ultimately was the cross and ultimately was the resurrection, the only way he got there was he listened to what the Father said, he heard what the Father said, he obeyed what the Father said, and he went where the Father said to go. And Jesus knew that you and I, to get to our Jerusalem, would have to have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying. And many of us need to be reminded that you're not on your own. You don't have to guess at it. The Holy Spirit is a master communicator. He's faithful to give you warnings. Don't go there. Be cautious in that relationship. He's faithful to give you peace. He's faithful to say, slow down. Don't rush that. Be patient. He's faithful to provide you light, to know how to take the next step. He may not give you the abundance of light and give you answers to everything, but he's faithful to give you just enough light to know how to take the next step. Jesus lived with that kind of guidance. You must live with that kind of guidance. And if you do not have it, you're going to end up like many people, and that is you will live split, you will live fractured, you will live all over the place, one day one way, the next day the other way. And this is why we do it. It's because we love choices. We worship choices. Don't tie me down. I don't want to commit to one thing because if I commit to that thing, then I can't get to this thing over here. But if you think about the kind of freedoms we want, the kind of freedom of we want to be able to do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it. But think about the level of anxiety and stress in our world. Think about how many people are constantly stressed, constantly anxious. Look at Jesus' life. He didn't need a bunch of choices. He made the commitment. I've got to get to Jerusalem. That's my one thing. That's the thing I'm focused on. And you never see Jesus stressed. You never see Jesus rushed. You never see him late. You never see him worried or fearful. But you do find that he's caring and clear and precise and compassionate. Jesus wants you and I to have permission today. You don't have to do everything. Will people be disappointed in you? Absolutely. A lot of people were profoundly disappointed in Jesus as well. But he said no. He said no to things because he was limited. But he trusted God and he trusted others to do what he could not do. I love the story about Christopher Columbus's journal. He would be faithful to write every single day about their voyages. He would write about the mutiny among his men. He would write about the sickness and the death. He would write about the storms that would hit and rip apart the ship. He would write about his own self-doubts and fears and desire to sometimes turn back. He would write about the lack of food and the dehydration 
he would write, he'd be faithful to write about all of those things. But at the very bottom of every one of his journal entries, he would write two words, sail on. He made a decision. I've got something I'm supposed to do. I've got somewhere I'm supposed to go. And no matter what the storms are, no matter what the attacks are, no matter what the self-doubt is, I've got to sail on. You know, there's just something about taking that first step and making a sure commitment to say, I'm going to take my will and commit it to God's will. And whatever comes against you, whatever tries to stop you, you're going to have to have something on the inside of you that says, nope, that's my Jerusalem. That's where I'm going. Which, by the way, you know, the Bible calls heaven the new Jerusalem. It's no accident that Jesus was focused on getting to Jerusalem. He was sending us a message. Your life should be so oriented, not about the fleeting things of this life, but should be so focused on eternity, should be so focused on that new Jerusalem that everything you say yes to and everything you say no to should be making sure that you're focused on that greater thing and that greater place that God's calling you to. And you know what happens when you do that? Jesus said, I will build my church and watch what happens. He commits his will to God's will and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. When you say, I will, guess what? Hell will not. Anything that wants to stop you, when you say, I'm going to commit my will to his will, all that opposition, all the people, all the things that want to convince you and try to hold you back and try to stop you, those things will always, always end up being defeated because your will is committed to the will of God. And this is not an easy thing, by the way. This is a difficult thing to commit your will to his will, to say like Jesus in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. It's easy to say, huh? But it was such a difficult task to fulfill and Jesus always kept his word. When he gave a commitment, he followed through with it. And it was such a hard prayer to pray. He falls on his knees and his sweat becomes great drops of blood because he knows what it means to take my will and commit it to God's will. It's a significant prayer to pray. It's a significant step to take, but it's the first step. On anything great, you have to take the first step and say, God, I'm going to commit my will to your will. Notice Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. Me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He made the commitment. Man, our house, our family, we're going to serve God. He committed his will to the will of God. Jesus, when he was 12 years old, what did he say? I must be about my father's business. All throughout his life, you see him consistently saying, this is where I've got to go. This is what my life is to be about. And he committed his will to the will of the father. 